the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too. During the festival of unleavened bread, after the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, Father, the mystery of your will is something that we can barely discern, but we ask for your spirit this morning to reveal to us what is your will. For things that happen to those who are good and bad, we do not fully know what your plans are. And bitter may be the bud, but sweet will be the flower when you reveal them to us. So through the preaching of the word, may you anoint uh, Jeff with the ability to convey your love and compassion to us. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our message series called The Relentless Gospel, The Unstoppable Mission of God. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we're going to be looking at James, the story of James, uh, his death, and Herod's opposition to James. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 1, as Patrick just read it, starts with this very curious phrase about that time. What time? Well, the time that we've been talking about over the last three weeks. We've been talking about a period, a season, a time in the life of the church where the gospel now has broken social and cultural barriers and has gone into the Gentile world. And it has gone into the Gentile world, in particular in Antioch, where the gospel has taken hold. Many people are coming to faith and coming to Christ. It is just a phenomenal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is undeniable what God is doing. And so the period that we have been looking at, that's the time that he's referring to. Incredible success. The gospel being met with reception and constantly seeing people come to the Lord in faith. And during this time, there's opposition. Why? Because there always is. A classic story of opposition to the purposes of God is Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, I love, this is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. This is, now God has put them in exile. God has judged the nation. Israel, because of their unfaithfulness to Torah, because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant, and their wicked kings, and their idolatry, and their injustice, God has put them in Babylon. This is a national timeout. And it has lasted for decades. And all through that time, before that time, and in that period, God had promised that he would return them to the land to rebuild their temple. Now, their temple has been left, that first temple, Solomon's temple, in shambles. It's a pile of charred scree. It just is a, it is a pile of rubble, burnt stones. And so when they get back, they have a lot of challenges before them. And they get to work building this temple. And they rebuild the gates, all of the gates of this temple and the ramparts and some of the domiciles that are connected to the temple walls. And as they are doing this, some Samaritans come down and challenge them. Here's what it says in Nehemiah 4, 1 through 3. It says, when Simbalat heard uh, that we were rebuilding the wall, Nehemiah says, now who is Simbalat? He's a local Samaritan warlord, a Horonite. It says, when Sembalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews 
before his colleagues and friends and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah, the Ammonite who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up what they are building, he, he would, he would uh, break down their stone wall. What is this, fourth grade? <laughs> I think this is one of the funniest paragraphs in the entire Bible. Here these men have come down, and what are they doing? It was a time of God releasing the people from captivity, a time of them going back to repopulate their homeland, to rebuild their sacred temple, to restart sacred festivals, and priestly teaching of the people in the temple. And no sooner do they get back there and enjoy the favor of God, the promise of this moment that the Lord has poured out for them, and some success, than this trash-talking Sanballat comes down with his crew to try to demoralize the work of God and the people of God. And this is always what Satan does to the church. When you look from Genesis to Revelation, this is the pattern. When God is moving forward, the forces of darkness are trying to push back. And in Acts chapter 12 is just a story. And this is a time when the Spirit, in Acts chapter 12, now this is a time, at this time, the Spirit is being poured out on the Gentile world. God is building his new temple. He's, he's, he's fulfilled that temple imagery. And now he's, according to Ephesians chapter 2, he's building a new temple and he's building it out of two peoples. He's building it out of the Gentiles and his original people, the Jews, all in Christ, being built up together as a holy temple to the Lord. And as God is building this new temple, this new people, and as the gospel is advancing and going forth into the world, opposition. So in the passage today, we'll see that Jesus is, is humanity's only hope. And the enemies of Christ are always at work to stop the forward momentum of this life-changing message about Christ. Let's take a few minutes and unpack some things we see in the text. First of all, Herod represented a futile approach to religion and politics. Herod represented a futile approach to religion and politics. Acts 12 1 says about that time, what time? The successful outpouring of the Spirit among the Gentiles, Herod in Jerusalem, King Herod. Who is he? Well, this is Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I. Now, who is he? Well, he's a grandson of Herod the Great. So he's got that going for him. He's also educated in Rome along with his best pals, Caligula and Claudius. Those two men later become emperors and appoint him to be the king. He is the brother of Herodias. Remember that story in the Gospels of Herodias? Who is she? Well, she was married to Herod Antipas. And John the Baptist comes along and denounces their marriage. And what do they do to John the Baptist? Off with his head. Kill him. This is the way you do it. And he managed to consolidate just about as much territory as his grandfather, as Herod the Great. First century historian, uh, Jewish historian Josephus describes him as a generous man to the Jews, to his Jewish people. He was mild in temperament. He was a competent and excellent administrator and ruler. He was a close friend to the Pharisaic party. He followed their way of Judaism, which means that he was Torah compliant, according to Phariseeism. He was zealous for his people, 
And so the headline is he was loyal to his friends Caligula and Claudius, Romans, the Roman Empire, who deployed him there to rule in Judea, but also fervently Jewish in his practice and his affections. He was fervently Jewish in his practice and his affections. As a matter of fact, there is a story. Josephus tells a story that he was uh, drinking one night with Emperor Claudius, and they got so drunk that the emperor said, uh, Herod, he said, uh, uh, Agrippa, you may have whatever you want in my kingdom, except for my position. And thinking that he would ask for something great, Josephus said he asked that the emperor, I'm sorry, not Claudius, uh, Caligula, remove his statue from the temple mount because it was causing all kinds of problems among his fellow Jews. That's the thing he asked for. That's the one thing he wanted. And so he endeared himself to the Jewish nation. And they loved him for it. He was considered by history, by all measurements, to be a good king. So what's his problem? What's his problem? Well, he set himself against King Jesus. That's his problem. And I don't care how good your political system is, if you ever set yourself against King Jesus, you got a problem. As Dr. Tony Evans would say, uh, you can have a lot of problems, but if God is your problem, then you really got a problem. And so he is a servant of imperial Rome. He's a client king in the empire. And the gospel of Jesus, listen, the gospel of Jesus was a counter-imperial message. You should write that down. If I was you, I'd write that down. The gospel of Jesus was a counter-imperial message. It had to be. It had to be. Christians claim for Jesus titles that belong to Caesar alone, like Lord, the Greek word kyrios, and Savior, the Greek word soter, and the Son of God, we ou theou. Christians claim to have a counter gospel that is the word euangelion to Caesar's euangelion, and he already had one, and Caesar's gospel was the royal announcement of his parousia, his arrival. And Caesar's arrival would, would announce to the people his accession to the throne, his victory in battle, or his birthday. And so the slogan of Rome's Pax Romana, the Pax Romana is, the, is Roman peace between 27 B.C. and 180 A.D. And what's their slogan? Peace and security. What does that mean? Why would that be their slogan? It's peace and security because if you live in the Roman Empire, even if you're not a citizen, which only 10% of the people were citizens, if you live in Corinth, you don't have to worry about your neighboring state. You don't have to worry about Athens attacking you. Because now everything, every kingdom has been consolidated under Rome's lordship. This is why the Caesar referred to himself as the king of kings and the lord of lords, because he was happy to have lots of kings and lots of lords as long as he was the king of kings and the lord of lords. So you have to understand that when the gospel goes out into this world, it is a counter-imperial message. It is a subversion to the notion that this man named Caesar is the Lord and Savior and the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus, by contrast, was a saving message for lost mankind, saving us from our sins, saving us from the permanency of death, saving us from hell forever. Now, there's no earthly system, no political system, no matter how good it got, that could ever solve that problem because you and I don't just have a political problem, you and I have a God problem. You and I have an existential problem. 
We are lost forever. And the gospel of Jesus goes into the world that says, King Jesus, the risen Savior, the risen Lord of the world, wants to rule and reign that territory that heretofore had been unrulable, had been absolutely untamable, the heart of man. The gospel was a subversive message for ungodly rule. Romans chapter 5, verse 17 This is what Paul says, this curious phrase. He says, if by one man's trespass, he's talking about Adam. He says, if by one man, Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man in the human race, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He's talking about two reigns. And every government at this time represents the reign of death in Adam. And Christ has come to give us the reign of grace, which results in our life forever. Amen? All right. So the political system that Herod and his pals Caligula and Claudius represented is the reign of death through sin. And the best they could ever offer was political peace and security with your neighbors, but they could never, never cure what ails the human heart Sin. Herod Agrippa is the best they can do. Number two, nothing the world throws at us can stop the gospel. Well, remember the title to this sermon series, The Relentless Gospel, Acts and the Unstoppable Mission of the Church. It is unstoppable. Satan can't stop it. Herod couldn't stop it. Rome couldn't stop it. The Caesar couldn't. Acts 12, 1 through 3, it says, about that time, King Herod, he violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed... James, Yaakov, John's brother with the sword. Wait a minute. He executed James? Yes, he did. Why? Because the goal is to stop this thing. The goal is to stop it in its tracks. Remember, the title of our series is The Relentless Gospel. It's unstoppable, and he wants to stop it, but he can't. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This is a curious passage. Ephesians chapter 6, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, you think it is. He says, but instead our struggle is against the rulers, authorities, and the powers. Those are exactly the words that you would use if you were describing Caesar and Herod and these other kings. They are the rulers, the powers, and the authorities. He says, but these are the spiritual forces in heavenly realms. What is he doing? He's pulling back the curtain so we can see who's really pulling the strings here against the gospel. It's not this flesh and blood. It's not these people who are opposing the gospels, these rulers, powers, and authorities. It's the spiritual forces that are pulling the strings here. And so he wants us to see that. Peter sees it too. 1 Peter 5 through 8 says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. Who's he looking for? He's looking for anyone he can devour, which is pretty much everyone who gets in his way. Resist him firm in the faith. You see, the devil begins with individuals. You and I don't have Herod. He's gone, but we still have the devil. We still have the spiritual forces in heavenly realms who are behind the scenes trying to pull the strings to oppose the church and our mission in Christ. And he starts with anyone. He starts with whosoever he can. Now, in the text in chapter 12 and Acts 12, 1 through 3, it says about that same time, King Herod violently attacked some who, some who belonged to the church. He got individuals. He's after some, whoever he can round up. 
And how does the enemy attack individuals? Well, he starts with our minds. He will launch incendiary thoughts into your mind, flaming arrows into the thatch of what he hopes is an ignorant, unattentive Christian mind. Have you ever gone through something and then right after that your mind becomes consumed with all that might happen? Like something comes to your doorstep and, you, you, and your mind is just set aflame. It's consumed by thinking what all about all the possibilities of what might happen. And that's what he wants to do with you. He wants to inflame our minds, our thinking with fear and doubt and frustration and deception. And this is why, folks, we must renew our minds in the word. And then he gets you to doubt God's promises. The apostle Peter says this, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Stop there. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, not through an angel, not through a person, but himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have been made to suffer for a little while. That's 1 Peter 5.10. God is my salvation and God is the strength of my life. Sometimes, folks, we just need to stop, we need to pause, and we just need to say that God is my salvation and God is the strength of my heart. And so he gets you to doubt what God has said about you, what God has said he is going to do for you and with you and in you. And then he gets you to forget what God has made you. Oh, man, if he just can't, if he can't set your mind on fire with doubts and thoughts and fear... If he, if he can't get you to doubt God's promises of what he says he's going to do for you, man, he wants to get you to doubt whom God says he made you. In Christ, you and I have been made new creations, heirs of heaven, recipients of a new and greater kingdom, recipients of peace with God and power over sin. But his ploy is to get you to forget all of that and to only identify as your failure or your loss or your tragedy. And I'm here to tell you, your tragedy, your loss, your failure, your sin does not define who you are. It doesn't. Jesus Christ alone has the right to tell you who and what you are. And Satan will work overtime. He will do his best to get you to doubt whom God says you are. And Jesus says, you are mine. Your life is hidden in me. You are renewed by the precious third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You're an heir of, of new creation and new life. And if he can't do any of that, well, he'll just keep you preoccupied in the American cult of leisure. If he can't do any of that, he'll, just get, he'll keep your mind so flabby and lazy, just foggy, and unready for battle, and, and you'll catch yourself. You know what I'm talking about. You'll be right in the middle of like binging a Netflix show and think, why am I even watching this? I don't even like this show, and I feel like I just have to watch it to the end. And this is his ploy, is to keep us absolutely encumbered and busy and distracted with our own leisure. Nothing wrong with leisure. We need it. That's what the Sabbath is for. 
But Herod Agrippa attacked individuals within the church, and Satan attacks individuals, individual members of the body of Christ. And then he attacks the leadership. Notice James. Now, which James is this? Because there's James, son of Alphaeus. There's Jesus, his brother named Yaakov or James. Which one is this? Well, this is James, uh, the brother of John. Now, he is one of the core three. If you read through the New Testament, here's what you'll find. Here's what you'll find. You'll find that James is a guy who is one of the three people who see some things that the other 12 don't get to see, not until the resurrection of Jesus. For instance, Matthew chapter 17. James is up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus suddenly just transforms into his heavenly glorified self, right? And he's standing there with Moses and Elijah. James gets to see that. So this is one of the pillars of the church, one of the core key leaders of the church. And just like that, he is slain. It takes less than a verse to even describe it. He's gone. Now listen, there are an entire list of governments, religions, various movements, fraternities that Rome had destroyed by simply killing the leader. Kill the leader and shame him by public execution and the movement will quietly go away or they will go underground. <clears throat> so he attacks the leadership to take them out of commission. This results in a demoralizing effect on the church and the gospel efforts. Hopefully, according to them, hopefully from their perspective, to stop the momentum of the gospel in the world. But they can't stop it. And that's Satan's work. He wants to attack your leaders. He wants to attack your small group leader, your Bible study leader, your pastors, me, your elders, everybody in this church. He wants to attack anyone who is responsible for leading the church into the community. At this time, King Herod violently attacked the church and the leadership. And what does he do? He sees that it pleases the Jews. Now, sometimes when Luke uses the phrase, the Jews, he means the Pharisees. And this also is how John uses that phrase in the Gospel of John. So he sees that this, this really pleases a certain sect among the Jews called the Pharisees. Now remember, he's a Pharisaic Jew. I mean, he, he believes in their system. He is practicing their system, and he wants to cozy up to these people, to have political favor with them. He sees it pleases them, so he rounds up Peter too. He rounds up Peter, and now he's going to execute two major driving forces of leadership in the church. Now, next week, we'll cover that story. Next week, we're going to look at how God delivers Peter. And the first thing you're going to notice from that story is that God, in his sovereignty, lets James die, but not Peter. And sometimes you pray, and you pray, and God answers and his answer can be no, not yet, not that way, or yes. Actually, I'm going to answer that prayer. And he does answer their prayer for Peter, but not for James' application. So how do we handle success and opposition to the gospel? So every time we're productive for the gospel of Jesus, when the gospel of Jesus goes forward, you and I experience opposition from the enemy. How do we handle it? What do we do with it? I think our first instinct should be this, to practice generosity. Practice generosity. 
Now, if you go back to 11, Acts 11:29, 11, before we get into the story about Herod, this is what the church is doing. Each of the disciples in Antioch, according to his or her ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. It is amazing that God is pouring out the Holy Spirit, and at the same time he's pouring out the Holy Spirit in revival here in Antioch, this pagan city, they are also filled with a spirit of generosity. That's kind of the way it works. When the Holy Spirit is present in a church, when the Holy Spirit is present among his people, there is a spirit of generosity. Why is that? Because God loved the world so much that he saved every penny he had. No. God loved the world so much that he lavishly, generously gave. He gave his best. He gave the Son of God, his one and only Son. So God is a giver. And when the Holy Spirit of God is poured out in our midst and poured out upon us, we reflect his giving, generous nature. And I thank God that I'm a part of this church. I've told you this many times before. I'm astonished at the generosity of this church. And I praise God for it. It, it is evidence that the Spirit is present in our midst. Our second instinct should be to habitually give God the glory. I think every song we sang this morning was about the glory of Christ. Oh, my heart was full. As we were singing those songs, I was like, yes, that's the sermon. We just sang the sermon. Habitually give God the glory. Not mechanically, but making this a, a heartfelt habit of giving the Lord the glory. Look at this doxology, how Paul closes, Paul and Tertius, how they close the book of Romans. Romans 16, 25 through 27 says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation about Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept silent for long ages, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures according to the command of the eternal God to advance the obedience of the faith among all the Gentiles. So this is God's plan, to strengthen you to the advancement of the obedience of faith so that the rest of the world can come and obey the gospel and trust in Jesus to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever. And this passage is obviously a doxology, but why do we relentlessly give God the glory, the only wise God through Jesus Christ? Because it is he who has done everything for us. We are who we are because of him. Because of this generous God, we have everything that we have because of this generous, glorious God. So if we're successful, if we produce the fruit of the gospel, if disciples are made and God does it, we give him habitually the glory. This is what we do when times are good. And God is able to strengthen our resolve to keep moving ahead despite our failures, despite our sufferings. To keep forging ahead despite unforeseen challenges and temptations, our focus is to always, forever, be on the glory, the prestige, the fame of God alone. Now, I would argue that this is all the more true and all the more necessary in times of abundance and prosperity. In times of abundance and prosperity, a lot can get done for the gospel, that's for sure, but I'm most often tempted to forget God in these times. And this is why we have to be intentional. We have to take care to give him the glory. And thirdly, we shouldn't forget to expect opposition. We shouldn't forget to expect opposition. The most natural thought to have when trials and sufferings come into our lives and, and come our way is to ask, what did I do 
to deserve this punishment. But folks, the trials and some of the sufferings and some of the things that come our way, they're not punishments. They're not always punishments. Now, they can be. They can be consequences for poor choices made. But God allows these things through his fingers, to slip through his fingers to touch our lives. Here's why. Because this is part of our discipline. As we go forward, as we advance, opposition comes, and it strengthens us, and God has a purpose in this. I was a quarterback, first-string quarterback, in football for as long as I can remember. I remember showing up as a little peewee, and I was so little, none of the pads fit, and I had this helmet, I looked like a bobblehead. And I remember showing up, and at first they put me in as running back, and they were like, hey, I think this kid can throw a football. <laughs> and so they tried me out as quarterback, and from then on, all the way through Pee Wee, all the way through Little League, junior high and high school, until I quit, I was a quarterback. I have to tell you, I loved being the quarterback. It just fit my personality. It really did. I loved calling the play in the huddle. I loved directing the offense. I loved being the point through which the, the energy of the offense was advancing the ball down the field. I really enjoyed being the quarterback. But the other reason I, I enjoyed being quarterback is because I didn't have to practice the way the other guys did. I didn't have to go through the same drills, and I kind of liked that. I was a little bit lazy. And so they would pull me and a couple of backs and a couple of receivers and two or three coaches would work with us, and all we would do is run offensive plays. And we would run them until we, we, would, we could run them in our sleep. It was just muscle memory. We could just do it. And then once we got it down and it was perfect, and I hit the guy on the route, and it just right there in the numbers, and everything was perfect, then they reintegrated us back onto the field against a real defense. And, and the coach would say, Okay, now I want you to crash through that line and kill Jeff. <laughs> and those big boys were like, yep, we're going to get him. <laughs> and I remember this one time. I'll never forget this. My dad is on the sideline, and I called the play, and they hiked it to me. And the guy just came through the line and hit me so hard, and I went back on my bottom and his shoulder blade had gotten out of his shirt and hit me right there. And so I had blood just everywhere, right on the nose, man, right on the button. And I remember I got up and I slammed the ball down and I'm fussing at everybody on the line. And my coach calls me over. Kennedy, get over here. And I come running over, take my chin strap off. I'm like, yes, sir. And he said, do you want to be the quarterback? I said, yes, sir. And he said, get back out there. You're going to get hit a few times, you know? This comes with the territory. <laughs> listen, listen, God has sovereignly, I think I've had this conversation lately with like Vic and Alan, <laughs> actually as a pastor. This happens still today. Listen, God has called us to advance forward, advance the gospel into our community and into the world. And if we do that, we should expect opposition because God has sovereignly ordained it so that when we go forward, we go forward against headwinds. That is exactly what is happening in this passage. Opposition has come amidst great success. We should expect it. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 4.12. He says, dear friends, friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. 
as if something unusual were happening to you. This is not abnormal, right? I love Peter, it's so direct. This is not abnormal, this is normal. This is not God punishing you, this is God moving the gospel forward into the world. This is how it happens. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter opposition. The fiery ordeal is just part of the deal. It's just part of the deal. And lastly, we must always be faithful to safeguard the sacred. I'll tell you, man, one of the things that's, the, one of the most heartbreaking things that I experienced as a pastor is to watch churches explode and to become very productive and fruitful and successful for the gospel, and then to watch their pastors implode. That has happened a few years uh, nationally, some, some sort of uh, uh, Christian celebrity pastors have just imploded morally, and it's really heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because that is what Satan is doing. He is after the leadership to get them to be immoral. And so it's really heartbreaking. But in the midst of this, we must safeguard that which is sacred. We must safeguard the sacred trust. Here's how Paul told Timothy this in Ephesus. He says in 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention. Watch your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We must pay close attention to our lives, how we live, how we are following the commands and the teachings of Jesus. Remember, we said last week, what is a disciple? Someone who's been baptized, converted. Someone who has died to themselves and now is alive in Christ and resurrection power. And one who is also being taught to obey all that Christ has commanded. It's not a person who is obeying all that Christ has commanded. Because none of us obey that perfectly. Not in this life. But it's a person who's being taught to obey all of Christ's commands. And there are frankly some things, some commands that Christ has for us that are really good for us. They bring us life. Proverbs 6.23 says, For a command is a lamp. Teaching is a light. And corrective discipline, well, that's the way to life. You want to experience the abundant life in Christ? The blessed life? Respond to his discipline. Embrace his commands. Follow his teachings. Don't just learn his teachings or listen to them on a Sunday morning. Man, do them. Walk after them. And God, God gave Israel commands, 10 commands, in fact. More, but 10 as the core commands. And why did he give those commandments to Israel? Well, it wasn't to ruin their fun. It was to maximize their flourishing. It wasn't to ruin their fun. It was to maximize their flourishing. What did the Pharisees do in Jesus' time? They turned everything that wasn't a command into an extra command. But what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 is he says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. You can't transgress something that God hasn't stipulated, that God hasn't revealed. I'll give you an example of that. When I came home uh, uh, years ago, I came home, and my kids were really little at the time. They were really small. Uh, Carly, I think, was three, and Logan was four going on five. And I came home, and I used to love Sour Patch candy. Anybody else eat those candies? In my 30s, I could eat a bag a night. And uh, once in a while, to, for movie night, we would get a big bag of them. Well, I came home one night, and there's a big bag of them sitting on the table, the kitchen table. And I walk upstairs, and I see those, and I, I think, oh, the family got those for me. 
So I walk over to the bag and I look inside and, and it's half gone. And I thought, oh, hey, there's lots of them left. So I take it downstairs, turn on some sports, I start putting these things down, and about two or three in, I think, boy, these are really slimy and gooey. <laughs> about that time, just before I finished the rest of the bag, Hayden, my son, my older, older son, comes upstairs and he sees me putting these things away. And he goes, oh, hey, Dad, um, earlier, this is a true story. He says, I saw Carly and Logan. Um, they were licking all the sugar off of them and putting them back into the bag. And I was like, what? I said, Carly, Logan, get up here. Because I was mad. Right? I'm sitting there eating these slimy things. And they come upstairs, and this literally happened. Car I said, Carly, what did you do to the candy in this bag? And she put her little fingers up like a gun, and she goes, I wicked them. <laughs> I said, oh, you wicked them. Yeah, I can tell you wicked them. <laughs> and I looked down at that bag. There were like six left, and I thought, well, I'm in it this far. I might as well just finish them up. <laughs> I really did that. <laughs> Now, fairly harmless transgression, right? There's no law in my house that you can't lick the sugar off a of candy and put it back in the bag and feed it to dad when he gets home. <laughs> There's no commandment, no precept, no statute that is being broken. Now, the Pharisees would have made that a law. They would have made that an extra law, but it wasn't. So nobody, frankly, was in trouble at all. But there are some commands and some guardrails that I have had in my home that the kids have transgressed, and there were consequences, both natural and otherwise. My son Hayden, when he was really little, probably about four or five, uh, he used to love to come out in the garage with me and work with me in the garage. He loved it. If he could just be holding the tool or a hammer and hitting something, he, he was in heaven. And he would... He had a real fixation with my knives, all of my chisels and my lathe chisels and just X-Acto knives. I had a bunch of X-Acto knives, and he would always try to play with them. So what I did is I took all of these knives, and I put them up on the very top shelf in my garage. And I told him, you are never to touch those. When Daddy is not around, you're not to use them at all. He goes, okay, Daddy. And I'm sitting in our living room, and I'm working on my computer on my laptop, and Tyler's kind of snuggled up next to me. And I see, out of the corner of my eye on the right, in the entryway, I see this tiny little blonde boy going, shoo, 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 shoo. And Tyler and I both look over at him at the same time. And before I could say, boy, put that X-Acto knife down right now, Hayden had crawled, he had climbed up to the top shelf and got my yellow X-Acto knife and was down there playing with it like a toy. But before I could tell him to put it down, Tyler bounced off the couch and said, boy, you better give me that, and grabbed it out of his hand and just cut a tendon in his hand. He had to have reconstructive surgery. We have the funniest pictures of him with a cast on and a little button sewn on the end of his finger. And so what did he learn? There were consequences for breaking that law. There were consequences for breaking that command. And so he had to learn through the consequences, there are rules. And if you break those rules, it leads not to your flourishing. It leads to you missing out the next three months of swimming. 
and doing the things you want to do? What are God's commands for? What are the commands of Christ for? What are these sacred things that we safeguard? What are they for? They're to maximize human flourishing. They're there. The guardrails are there so you can enjoy life, not to take your fun away. And sometimes we are tempted. We are tempted when we're successful, when the gospel is advancing and we're going forward. We're tempted to just fudge on things that really do matter. And we shouldn't. What is happening in this story is Herod Agrippa, who is a good king. He's better than most of the kings in the Old Testament in the line of David, that's for sure. But he set himself against King Jesus. So that's strike one, two, and three. And he's opposing the work of the gospel in a season in which the gospel is going forth and successful. It's fruitful. Folks, we need to anticipate this. This is how it happens. This is, and we need to safeguard and we need to be very vigilant with reference to all of these things. We need to stay the course. Stay the course. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we thank you for your goodness and your abundance. Uh, We have every reason to thank you. As, As Daniel said earlier in the service, when we think about all that you have given us and done for us, we're overwhelmed, frankly. We thank you for being a giver and making us a generous people to the gospel after your own heart. Thank you for that. And God, we recognize that there is no earthly system, there is no political system that can ever replace what you offer in your kingdom, which is peace and security with God, which only comes through your gospel. And may we be intentional to give you the glory in all things, living and working for your fame and the prestige of your kingdom, your son. Father, would you strengthen us as we encounter opposition? We surely will. But as we are fruitful and faithful and we advance the gospel into lives in this community, in this world, God, would you just protect us against opposition? But Lord, give us the strength in our heart to face it. And as the world tempts us to just turn the gospel into a a trendy, worldly thing, God, would you help us to keep it sacred so that we may win people for your name's sake? In Jesus' name, amen.